0: Welcome to a Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption's Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. Hey, good morning. If you would, uh, before you sit down, why don't you just stay up? We are, uh, probably didn't catch you, maybe some. Um, we are going to just jump in by reading this uh, text together. Some of you uh, already know where we are at today. Uh, It's kind of a heavy text and a big text and a weighty text, but it's breathed out by the Spirit of God and useful to us. So uh, just kind of in proper reverence, I'm going to stand and read and ask that the Lord would do his uh, work, even in a a, a text that's just a little difficult. Uh, So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 9. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened If it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Uh, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. This is uh, the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Father, uh, be with us. Uh, We just ask for your help. Holy Spirit, we need uh, you, uh, not our earthly wisdom or uh, insights. Holy Spirit, come and draw near. I pray that we would see the beauty of Jesus even through difficult words, uh, that our hearts would not be uh, distracted, uh, but that we would see the goodness of a good Father and a, and a good Son and a willing Holy Spirit to come and walk next to us and teach us and encourage us. We pray that in your name. Draw near to us uh, as we draw near to you. Amen. So, uh, not avoiding it, right? Uh, we have to deal with the understanding that this is a pretty hard in contentious texts, as I was doing a little bit of research this uh, week, I've heard that several churches actually skip the book of Hebrews because of these verses, uh, and others uh, will kind of do this: they will dig into the verses right before, and then they'll dig into the verses right after, and they'll and they'll, they'll go over these really quick. and And the reason is because a lot of fights have broken out over these. Uh, churches have split. Entire denominations uh, have. Uh, fractured really over these words and the interpretation of them over the history of the church. This has been a heated and hard section of scripture because inside of it is held the topic of losing salvation or specifically the topic of or the question of if it is indeed possible to lose salvation or not. Now, bringing that up, I'm not tooting our own horn and saying we're the brave ones and we're going to do it. That's not what I'm trying to do, and I'm not even trying to judge other people's approach over the text. I more so want us to appropriately realize what's in front of us and what we're diving into. We've been aiming at becoming a people of prayer. Asking for the power and presence of God. Many are you are leaning into a desire for a revival where you're starting to say the things of the world are not are, are not contenting me anymore. I, I want you and I want more of you. Come, Lord, pour your spirit out on your people. Do your work. We're kind of in that vein. So I would not be surprised if the enemy of God uses this text as, as fodder or kindling to try and get us to turn on each other instead of continuing to contend for prayer and the power and presence of God. Of God. So, so, my thing in leaning into this is, is really not to brag, it's to tell you don't take the bait. Do not war against each other, even if this is hard, especially considering the idea if you believe someone can lose their, lose their salvation or not is, is not worthy of division over. It's not a mountain to die upon. There are going to be great brothers and sisters who fall on both sides of this, and that's fine. They're gifted, Holy Spirit-empowered, wise uh, teachers and leaders in the church that will be on both sides of that issue, and that's okay. So part of maturity for us, remember last year, growing in maturity, understanding how to see the things that are coming at us with a, a biblical lens. Hopefully that pays off so we can be mature now to say, this is really important, but it's not ultimate. So this means that you can see this differently than I do. Uh, you can see this differently than we, we teach it at Redemption's Hill, and you can be a member here, a leader here, a valued brother and sister. This is not something to fight each other over, and it's not something to leave over or think that your road, is, it, it doesn't really have a path forward if you don't see it the way that we do. So I'm just trying to be careful. This is heavy and hard, but it's still really good. Don't fight. Uh, if we look at the thread that the author has been weaving into the book so far, uh, there are believers who are kind of, they're looking over the shoulders, right? And they're trying to decide if Christianity is worth it, if the trial and and persecution that has come in their life is causing them such pain that they should actually abandon uh, Jesus because of the pain coming towards them. They're wondering, will I be better leaving Christ, abandoning Christ, and going back to the Old Testament law and covenants to find favor with God? the question of of should i leave jesus for comforts and peace and happiness and just a easier road that doesn't feel like i'm always going against the the current of uh, of the world and to this the author says i know it's hard no don't do that because jesus is better better savior better path better hope better peace better uh prophet better priest all of these things jesus is just better i know it's hard where are you going to go he is Better. Last week, the author seems to take a moment to say with all of that understanding that Jesus is better, he says, okay, so let's go. Meaning if Jesus is really a better faithful high priest, if he is the perfect sacrifice, not the kind of perfect, but the perfect sacrifice, if he really does bridge the, the gap between us and God and brings us into the throne room of the presence of God, if he can really do all of that, then it's probably time to stop looking over your shoulder and trying to leave. It's time to leave the elementary doctrines and go on to maturity in this heavy section. He says some in and around the church need to grow up because they are still infants spiritually. Some don't listen. They don't learn. Uh, They're not growing in biblical wisdom, and it shows itself really clearly in the fact that they have no discernment. They don't know how to see what's right and wrong in simple or complex issues, and they can't really tell a truth from a a, a lie in culture anymore either. They're helpless children, takers who can't navigate the road, and spiritually they're running in traffic all the time because they don't know what to do. This was a clear warning, don't be content being a spiritual child. If you're content in not growing, if you're content in not becoming more mature in your faith, that's a sign that something's actually gone incredibly wrong. It's not saying you can't have seasons that wax and wane, but if you're going, hey, man, I'm just not on that road. I'm just never going to do any of that my whole life. I've got no desire to, to grow in my faith in Christ or grow in my following of Christ. There's a good chance you're not actually a, a believer. You're meant to grow. It's a sign and a warning. Do not be deceived. A major problem in the church throughout all history is chronic immaturity. Now follow me, because we're, we're, we're trying to thread the needle and go, okay, what, what are you doing? right? Because he goes, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. Apostasy. What? Why, why did you do that? Some will take this information, that drive uh, of a need to mature, and they could possibly say, okay, so the one thing that we need to watch out for is immaturity. If a person appears to be mature and they have wisdom in the word, if, if a person is growing in discernment and they seem to be able to navigate the world, if a person hears and listens and, and grows and they, and they appear to walk deeply in, in Christ and they seem to have some great things and some works and all of this stuff happen, if, if they're mature and all of that's happening, then they're a mature believer and, and, and everything's fine, right? And, and the author kind of says, unfortunately, it's not that easy. There will be some who manifest all of those things, maturity and works and growth and yet they're going to walk away the assumption that a person is mature so they are fine and saved and everything is good doesn't really hold all the time because at times people we know and love in our church and in others or family or friends they appear to be growing and on fire for the Lord and wise and devoted and gifted and talented and amazing things and all of this and yet still the text says some will fall away even with all of that being true They'll walk out and want nothing to do with God anymore. And some will go so far in this text, it says, to reverse course and begin to hate Jesus. The Jesus who they once fondly uh, connected themselves with, yes, I followed Jesus. Now they can't stand him. Some will go that far. That's hard for us to understand. Why in the world does that happen? Now, the scenario of that person who appears to be a true Christian, but they then walk away, uh, leaves believers wondering, okay, what in the world happened there? Depending on the theological camp maybe that you've grown up or how you read uh, the Bible, there seems to be four major ways that people kind of cut this and interpret what's happened, four ways that they kind of make sense out of the, the painful uh, reality of someone that they love or know or care about, just gone. M-I-A, no more Jesus for me, That four ways. The first is this, and I don't normally don't give four points in a row, so just hold with me. The first way that people deal with this, and it's a very popular one, several here will probably fall into this, is they'll say that a person was indeed converted as a believer at one time, but they fell away. They let their heart be hardened, and through that falling away, they uh, themselves, through their actions and their heart, they forfeited their salvation. This is not that the enemy stole them from God. This is not what's held in this belief, but more that the person like Adam in the garden said, you know, I'd rather do my own thing, and they walk so deeply back into a pattern of sin that they leave God. This is the act of apostasy from a one-time Christian. And this is why many people uh, over history use this text to argue that a person can indeed lose their salvation or at least renounce it fully or give it up. To be clear, this position holds that you can be unsaved and then saved and and then unsaved again, right? First position, you harden your heart, you forfeit your salvation. I, I would rather other things. The second possibility people roll out is this type of situation is that the person was saved genuinely before and they even still are saved at this moment, but they're gonna lose some of their benefits of salvation eternally because of their bad decisions. Their rewards in heaven will be lessened due to bad behavior. They're not going to hold firm until the end. Uh, so, so, they, so they would have this reward and this many uh, like jewels in their crown, and maybe they get a half of one right now. Like it's, it's lessened. This can be viewed as a more hyper-Calvinistic view of salvation. Notice I said hyper. That is not the view of Calvinistics. Calvinistic? Calvin? Calvinists? I'll edit that out of the podcast. Hyper-Calvinists believe a person can once be saved and still be saved regardless of how they live. It doesn't matter. You once were in and he'll never let you go. So how you live doesn't matter. You don't have to person fear until the end. You don't have to bear fruit. A person can abandon God, but God will not let them go. They can even act like they hate God, but it's too late. The salvation will stick. Now, Though I did say that uh, the navigation of this issue isn't worth dividing over, Uh, most people here won't fall into this camp. I would say that this is one of the most reckless and and problematic views that you could probably hold. Uh, I think number one and number four can much easily... uh, I can't talk today. They can have an easier time working... Uh, together. But this idea believes that a person can refuse to actually follow Jesus. And remember, the call is not pray a prayer, it's follow me. They can refuse to follow Jesus, want to be like Jesus, depend on Jesus, and still benefit from the work of Jesus, which the Bible clearly, I believe, rejects all over the place. This view isn't just applied for those who walk away, though. It's also applied in other cases, uh, specifically where people believe that maybe baptism or church membership are salvific. And they mean that a person is, is saved no matter what. Some people believe, well, I was baptized uh, when I was a baby. My grandma helped me baptized, or any of these other things. So because of that, uh, I am saved. Or I was a member at a church one time. Because of that, I am saved. How I live doesn't matter. What I do doesn't matter. If I follow Jesus or not is irrelevant. Uh, I'm, I did those things. So I'm, I'm saved. My life doesn't matter. We here, we reject that view pretty thoroughly. Still with me? Two more. All right. The possibility on the third one is that a person who walks away, um, they can be saved, but God, if they were truly saved, will intervene, basically headlock and bring them back. God will not let them continue in their unrepentance forever. He will return them to the flock, to repentance, to following Jesus. Now, now here's this thing, because a lot of us will be like, hey, that sounds pretty good, Right? This is not talking about the person who goes wayward and has a, a, a season of, of sinfulness or a, a younger brother season or anything like this. This isn't someone who just backslides in the faith. This third view believes that someone can fully reject the faith, disavow Jesus. I hate him. I want nothing to do with him. He was a bad choice when I was young and too dumb to realize that he wasn't the real way. And still God is going to overrule them no matter if they want him or not, and he will keep them in the family of God The text today will pretty heavily challenged that one as well. The fourth, again, I believe the fourth uh, and the first will be the ones that most of us hold to here, uh, is that a person who fully walks away and rejects Jesus, at one point, uh, they seem to gladly accept him, but now they hate him. Uh, They aren't just struggling in sin. They say, I don't want Jesus anymore. That person has gone apostate, and some believe that this person was never actually saved In the first place, this would be the view that I hold that we preach here at Redemption's Hill. If a person claimed Christ and then walks away forever, not a season, forever, I reject Jesus, I want nothing to do with him, I'm out. That person was never truly converted in the first place. They were, as Sam Storms puts it, an unsaved believer. Uh, Again, I tried to show that. Number one and number four, I think, are going to heavily be represented here. And that's okay. Number two and three are going to be a little bit further out. I'm having all kinds of issues today. My notes are gone. The Lord has other plans today. Here we go. Maybe he wants to preach something else. Here we go. And we're back. A lot of cutting on the podcast. I won't really do it. I'll be too lazy. Um. Okay, yeah, give me grace on that, sorry. Um, four views. They were saved and they gave it up on purpose. They were saved and will have their benefits reduced. They were saved and God will headlock them and bring them back. They were never actually saved in the first place. Uh, what's actually in the text, though? That's probably what matters instead of just the four points. The author mentions those who've once been enlightened he says they've tasted the heavenly gift they shared in the holy spirit they've tasted the goodness of the word of god and the powers of the age to come and then they fell away it says that it is impossible to restore them again to repentance heavy words now this text is used by many who believe that salvation can be lost heavily and I understand why, because it looks like this is a clear picture of a Christian, enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, tasted the power and goodness of God. He, he, how could a person experience all of this, go this far in, be this deep in, and never actually be saved? That, that's what the wrestle is. That's the tension behind the text. But the word enlightened means to receive some sort of knowledge. In the parable of the soils, Christ gives himself uh, an example that kind of plays out this way. A person can hear the gospel, the word of God, the, the seed, and at first they can seem to have fruit. They can seem to bear fruit and, and, and accept it joyfully and lean into it. There seems to be some sort of enlightenment. They get it. They, they want Jesus. They're, they're in. But later it says thorns come in and they, and they choke it out and the person falls away. This isn't good soil that morphed into bad soil. This is not good soil that people thought were good soil for a while. That's the whole point of the parable. Further, there are brilliant scholars over the Bible who are not Christians. As hard as it is to believe, they may not have saving faith in Jesus, but they understand a ton about the Bible. They're enlightened in it. They understand quite deep things in the Bible, but their knowledge alone is not proof of their salvation or their faith in Jesus. More examples, look at the Pharisees. All of the time throughout the Gospels, Jesus hit heads with the Pharisees because they understood the laws. They understood the idea of covenantal faith. They understood all of these things. They had tons of knowledge, and yet these same ones were the ones who demanded Jesus be murdered. Their their faith wasn't saving even deeper. Look at Satan. Jesus tempts Satan uh, for 40 days, and what does he tempt him with? Scripture taken out of context. He has an enlightened understanding of the word. He knows how to use it. He knows how to navigate around it. But that's surely not a proof that like Satan's a fellow brother or sister in Christ, right? No. Knowledge is is not a proof of salvation. Then tasting the heavenly gift. This is where we just need to be intellectually honest. We don't know what that means. Right? It sounds like, well, I mean, surely that means it's a fancy poetic way to say saved. Uh, I think it's probably a reference to communion. They've tasted the gift from heaven. They've literally taken it and taken in Christ's body and blood. They've taken the elements of proof. They've tasted the gift. Many people take communion and that doesn't mean that they're believers. They shared the Holy Spirit uh, they, they shared in the Holy Spirit the goodness of God and the power of God. There are incredible uh, blessings that come to the church body as the church in large follows Jesus. Seasons of peace and comfort and power and things that happen and wisdom that come about a people. Those things can happen and be experienced by a group and it doesn't mean that everyone in the group was saved the entire time. What's well, another example because I don't want to give you just my opinion. Look at Saul. Saul was given spiritual blessings and privileges. The Bible clearly says that he's given from the spirit the ability to lead and even prophesy. And yet his heart rejected God and he refused to submit to God or follow God. He was given clear gifts and yet he was not reconciled to God. Look at another New Testament example, Judas, gifted Gifted enough to be put in charge of all the disciples' money, called by Christ, confirmed by the other, and yet his giftings and the power that he experienced and the abilities that he displayed were not proof that he was saved. You may wonder, okay, that's great. Why are we going so far into the weeds? Why am I trying to show that this text doesn't have to mean that someone is saved and then yet lost their salvation? And and the reason is a beautiful truth that we hold on to, is the doctrine of eternal security for a believer. We see in Scripture that God does not lose his children. His kids can't be taken from him, from Satan or the world or anything else either. And further, even when we fall short or we miss the mark in our sin, even when we struggle and have bad days or bad weeks or bad seasons of struggle, that doesn't mean that salvation is lost or that we forfeited it or or that it's even up for debate. We have to have a a larger scale look at the Bible. The terms of redemption, union with Christ, and atonement, those are eternal realities. Those aren't flowing realities. Your union with Christ all over the Bible, your union is fixed. They don't turn on and off like a light. They don't go up and down like the, the stock market. You are his and united and nothing will rip you out of the hands of the Father. While we do not get to reject Jesus and get a free pass all of our life for it, again, we believe the person who does that was not actually converted, the eternal uh, security that we have means that we have margin to, at times, not follow Christ perfectly and yet still be saved. This is the beauty of God sending Jesus. He was perfect where we were not. He met every area where we fall short. His perfection saves us. The Holy Spirit turns us to him and the Father holds us and will not let us go. Further, the work of God in salvation is to take dead things in their sin and make them alive. It's to make, right? Ephesians 2, they were dead dead in their sin, lost in their sin, the work of the gospel is to take dead things and make them alive in Christ and the Bible says to make us a brand new creation. The old you is gone and the new has, has come. Your sin is as is, is far away as the east is from the west. If salvation can be forfeited or lost, that means a, a person can, can go spiritually from dead to alive to dead to alive. And I'm not, trying, I'm not trying to like make a ha-ha joke. Like that, that dance back and forth isn't something that I think we really see in scripture. Now this debate is worth diving into because, because it holds a lot of weight in our lives regarding how safe we can really feel. You and I know we don't have great days every day. We know that there's seasons where we are not on, not desiring the things of uh, the Lord, walking more in the flesh than the spirit. There, there, are, there are days, right? We don't want to walk in those all the time, but it, but it happens. If salvation can be lost or forfeited, the person's always going to have to wonder, did I just lose it? How far is too far? Did I give it up and I'm just too deceived to realize that I gave it up? Did I, did I lose the Father? Did I step outside of the bounds of the love of God? They're, the belief is that we are sealed in the Holy Spirit, and if you are sealed, you'll be held until the end. Your union with Christ is eternally secure, and it'll never change. Now, we don't have time to fully dig into it, too, but one of the, the biggest, strongest, I think, proofs for this or reasons why we lean into it, hopefully gracefully and not trying to fight everyone over it, But salvation is called a covenant of grace. A covenant is not a contract. It's not like the way that our culture does marriage. A a covenant is a lifelong, until death, binding arrangement made in blood with blessings and cursings forever inside of it. Read all through the Old Testament and you'll see a people who make a covenant with God and they fall short of their end and God goes, I'll never fall short of mine. I will not be a liar and I'll hold on to them and I will do my part forever and ever and ever and ever because my name will not be defamed. Here's the, here's the understanding. In a marriage contract, we come in, I'll do this and I'll do this and as long as we hold into our part, we will stay together. But as soon as one person doesn't do their part, broken off, that's not a covenant. A covenant is, I will do this, and I'll do this, and even if you don't do your part, I will hold until death, until the end, I will never go. This is what salvation is discussed as all through the Bible. It's not a little promise, it's not a little decision, it's a covenant back with the holy blood of Jesus and the word of God, I'll never let him go. Again, I don't want to divide over it, but there's a lot of security in my heart for this because I get anxious sometimes. And the belief and understanding that even when I didn't hold my part up well, that he won't let me go, I can fall asleep that way. It's not meant to make you run and license and act a fool and go, but I'm saved because covenant. No, that's not it. But there's a lot of security in this. When we see, what we see when we look around the Bible is this continual troubling thing. And we ignore it a lot, and I think it causes us quite a bit of heartache. There's a continual cycle of people who seem to believe They have a form of of belief, something in belief, and yet they walk away fully and finally from God. In John 2, we get a glimpse of this as a, a group who would fall into this category. It says they believed in the name of Jesus and the signs and wonders from him. That's the word in the Bible. They believed, and yet later, I'm pretty sure this is the same group who screamed crucify him, kill him. I want nothing to do with him. Their belief was a season. It was a phase. It was never actually real, never penetrated the heart. They probably wanted some blessings from Jesus or some insurance that they thought Jesus would give him. But then as soon as that kind of lost its luster, they're like, forget him. They believed until they didn't believe. Then in John 6, Jesus is prophesying prophesying over the concept of penal substitutionary atonement. Big, fancy word to say that his blood will pay the bill. He says, all that would follow me will have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Imagine the Savior looking at you and saying that. Many disciples heard these words and they turned away from Jesus and goes, I want nothing to do with you. I don't understand it. How could you even say those things? They, they didn't understand what he was saying, and they didn't want to lean into his plan for salvation, and they walked away. This group who believed, and they had devoted much of their life so far to believing and following Jesus. These were, were not like nominal people who just in a day said, yes, I want Jesus. They were disciples following and learning. They go, no, no I don't want anymore, and, and they walked away. There was a form of belief but it looks like it's not saving belief. In John 8, Jesus speaks to a group of, of Jews, and the text says they believed in Jesus, but Jesus feels the need to differentiate to them between real belief and momentary belief. He goes, okay, hey, it's only those who abide in me and hold till that till the end that truly believe. He's going, hey, you all say you believe. We got to understand, it's, it, this is the real belief. It holds the whole time, abiding and staying See, words out of our mouth and then abiding that lasts are not the same thing. Then probably one of the more troubling texts in the word, Matthew seven twenty two through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, this is Jesus, back to them. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Anyone who actually looks at that text and doesn't look away immediately, that's heavy. There's some sort of belief that we see in the Bible and we see from these people that it isn't actually saving faith. And here's the hard part. They did amazing works, much, much like the text in Hebrews they were around the church, probably, probably were enlightened. There's some amazing stuff that was happening around them. It says that they even prophesied and cast out demons, and yet Jesus sends them away. They never knew him. He said, yeah, you said that you believed in me, but you never submitted to me or never knew me. So talent, or talent time around the church, works, even amazing works, and amazing talent are never a foolproof sign that a person is saved. That's why we need to take the time to pay attention to our hearts and pay close attention to our life and doctrine. As Timothy says, be careful about your assumptions. You're not supposed to panic all the time, but be careful about your assumptions. The text goes on to to say, the one from Hebrews, that those who have claimed Christ at one time but then fully and finally fall away, not just a backslide, not just a rough season or a little college phase or anything like that, but... Their hearts turn to the point that the Jesus who was once good is now a stench to them. They were, they now reject him so fully I cannot stand him. It says this person can't be restored to repentance. They are, as the text says, crucifying Christ again by their actions. Again, this doesn't mean that they're literally crucifying him again. The sacrifice is complete. It's over. That's the whole point. He could be the one that sits down because it's done it means the people who do that, who once claimed him but now are mocking him, are doing the same thing as the crowds who crucified. They once loved him, and now they're saying, I can't stand him, and I hate him. They're showing contempt and mockery towards the Son of God, even though they've been in and close, and they know more than some of the other people, and they've been around, and they've even seen the works of the Spirit, and they're all they've deep in, and they reject him. I believe this is what is referred to other places in the scripture as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. A person who's tasted and seen the things of God, firsthand enlightenment and experience, some stuff has happened and yet they reject Jesus. This person cannot be restored. As Romans 1.28 says, they will be given over to their sin. Fine, you can have what you want. Enjoy. Now, asking ourselves, okay, Why is this here? Remember, these people in the Roman church, they're thinking of leaving Jesus. In order to leave Jesus and go back to the Old Testament covenants, it's not that they just aren't going to talk about Jesus in public. To go back to the ways that the other Pharisees and other people were doing, they have to renounce him. I was wrong. He was wrong. He's a heretic. He's not the sent one of God. I want nothing to do with him. He was never the way. God, forgive me. Like this turning back to the father in a hatred of the son is what they would have to do. Again, the necessary question, why is this text here? How does it show us that Jesus is better? How does it help the people who are thinking of walking away? The low-hanging fruit is that it applies to them. I understand you. If you walk that full road, you can't walk that back. We're just wrestling with this this week. We use all these words like, no one's too far gone. and no There's a very small case here. The Bible says be really careful about that decision. Be very careful. Again, this is not a season, but a person who walks into full hatred of Jesus that can't be walked back. Now, there are people who say, well, it says impossible to be restored, but nothing's impossible with God, so God can do it. Fair enough, maybe, I hope so. I would love for that to be what's actually true. It just doesn't say that. And so we just got to wrestle with it accordingly. Now, the other reason, why is this here? I think the author is dealing with a personal situation for those readers as well. One of the most painful things that we encounter, a true form of of suffering, if not trial, comes when we watch the people that we love leave and never come back. And I don't mean just leave our church and go to another? I mean, the people that we care for, family or loved ones uh, that, that we've walked with, whether this church or another, do we see them leave and they never step into a church again? It's gut-wrenching to see it happen. It's a heavy weight to, to see it happening because then you begin to wonder about their eternal state. Again, why this debate comes up, where they saved, what happened, begin to wonder about their lives, your relationship, what's going to happen in the future if what you thought was real wasn't really real because you saw amazing things and works and gifts that they had and now they want nothing to do with, with Jesus. Man, what, what I saw seemed so real and we walked together for, for years. This is a painful, disorienting thing when it happens. Then if you want to up the ante, it's hard enough when it happens, a friend, a family member, a son, a father. What if the person who walks away was a leader of yours? What if they were your pastor, your mentor? What if they discipled you? What if you trusted them and respected them and saw God use them? How confusing is that to the heart? What? What? See, what I've seen is the enemy uses this to try and sow doubts in your heart over your own faith in Jesus when someone else runs to the door. He uses that to make us ask, would I be better doing something else too? Do they know something I don't know? Man, they were gifted and strong in their faith. If they couldn't hold on, I couldn't hold on. Like, Should I just cut bait now? It becomes difficult. What in the world do you do when people you really care and respect leave? To which the author again says, I know it's hard. Don't run. Jesus is better. Consistent message. Even when friends, family, and leaders more walk away, Jesus is still better to him, cling to him in the sizable pain. There are many of you, when I talk about the scenario of people who walk away, a person comes to your mind, right? Maybe not just even in this church, Maybe it's in this church, maybe it's a family member, it's in another church, maybe it's an old experience, but somebody comes to your mind, a memory comes to mind, and you automatically think of some. For some of you, I know the person that you think of when this is talked about. A person that you're grieved for, a person that your heart hurts over. Again, maybe family, maybe just a close friend, maybe a mentor. Here's another part of taking the debate, The not taking the bait. The play today is not to diagnose whether that person was really saved or not. It's not to try and parse out if they, they forfeited their salvation or not. The play is to pray and plead that the Father would grab them. I don't know how far they've gone. And it's not even my job to know. Father, grab them, restore them. Yeah, this text is about apostasy of drastic cases. This is not the normal. This is not just, well, they don't come to our church anymore. Apostate, impossible to be restored. That's not what it's saying. Though a person goes from belief to some, of some sort to Christ to, to hatred towards him in this apostate example, that doesn't mean that every person that has left our church or every person that we love that has left a church is an apostate. Some of them just may be in a, sin of doubt, a season of doubt or a season of, of hurt. They may not be Judas. They may be the younger brother, and they've left the 99 and God needs to grab a hold of them. And bring them back. As the people of God, this text asks a couple things of us. Hey, don't doubt the Lord. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's hard. Don't doubt the Lord. And don't doubt him over the people who have walked away. But ask God to bring them back once again. Stop debating whether they were really saved and ask the Lord, whose arms are not too short to save, to grab a hold of them. He'll work out if they were saved before or not. God, would you intervene? We fight over whether people are saved, but we forget that we can fight the enemy by praying that God would do what only he could do. Man, we get so distracted and in the weeds. The enemy uses these cases to try and knock you down and make you doubt when we forget how powerful prayer is. Jesus won prayer on the cross with his blood that takes you to the throne room of God to experience the presence of God, and then God listens as a good father and cares, and you have access to him think the play is to bring our needs and petitions to him surrounding this today as we worship and song and go and take communion the the time of prayer we're we're still kind of doing that and leaning into that leaves a time for you to go to the lord specifically about the people that you worry about the friends the family member the brother the 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 sister the mother the father any of that go to the lord please work please work restore them you're wondering and doubt on your own over the pain who have people have left, I think lean into the Lord even over that when the time we pray, God help me. My heart's hurt and it's caused me to doubt your goodness. I don't know what to do. Help me not to doubt. Help me not put my eye on the door anymore. Then as we have our time, go to the Lord and ask him to work. The hope in prayer, and I've said this to a couple of people, you know prayer doesn't just stop a prayer, right? It, it, it's going to turn into the work of the Spirit and mission. This is part of the way where it goes missional. God, reach your hand out and grab those who aren't here. And I don't just mean in Redemption's Hill. Do your work. Save my mother. Save my brother. Save my friend who's not here. Come, do the work that only you can. Man, I've tried to call and I've texted. I've tried to do all these things. Please do what only you can do. I pray that we will and that we'll see some people restored through this. One of the things that I would encourage you for is when you have prayed for someone a couple times and it hasn't happened, don't give up. And you know, We've seen beautiful stories of people come to faith after 15 years of praying. Not 15 weeks or 15 months. Don't give up. Yes, the pain is real over the people that you don't see anymore. So go to the Lord and ask him to do his work. Band, you guys can come back up. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. and When he had given thanks, he broke, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We'll play a song, have some time of prayer and then you can come up and take and remember the body and blood of Jesus was shed from me. Even in moments when I doubt, even in moments where my, my faith is weak, even in weeks that it, man, I haven't followed well and even in the pain of people that, that you've seen walked out and you're trying to parse out the reality of what's happening there, the body and blood of Jesus was still shed for you and his blood and body were shed for others as well i pray that you'd come and be encouraged at the table as we take if you're in a moment of doubt man i'd lean into that and just tell the lord man i'm having a hard time trusting you over the people who've left help me holy spirit draw me near to you again help me to believe and if you even hear these words of a heavy text and you begin to say maybe mine was not the real belief before and, and maybe i was just trying to like Get insurance or get something from Jesus. And, and, and maybe there's more. If you find yourself into that place today too as well, lean into that. The goodness of God is trying to draw you in and give you true belief. In that moment, if that's the reality for you, there's not some big thing that you have to do, I would be happy to pray with you. But you can also just say, Lord, I, I, I need to not just say your name as, as something out of my mouth. I, I need to turn my heart over to you as my Lord and King. Will you save me? Man, and he will. Don't keep going if the Lord is beginning to prod. Maybe your belief wasn't true. Because here's the thing. The enemy wants to tell you, man, what will people think? And will you look like a fool? And surely that's not true. Well, those are all words from the enemy if the if the Father's trying to draw true faith out of you. Lean into that. Press against your doubt. And go to the Lord believing prayer is mighty for the ones that... We don't see here anymore or friends and family who are not in the church anymore asking that God would intervene. Yes, the issue of salvation or the loss of it is important. That's not what we're praying about, though. We lean into, God, you save me and I feel safe there. We also ask that God would do more work.